0: In 1924, uh, reps from the largest lighting companies in the world, so reps from companies like Philips and General Electric, they met in Switzerland, uh, and they kind of got together, and there's this, this, uh, <laughs> this big um, coalition, and they, they acknowledged with one another, hey, we have a problem. We're making our bu- bulbs so well. They're, they're of such high-quality construction that our sales are really suffering. You know, the problem is people would buy a light bulb and then they wouldn't have to buy another light bulb. And that's awesome if you're buying the light bulb. But It's not awesome if you're trying to build a company. It's not a good business strategy that someone buys something once and moves on unless you're a mortician and you're selling caskets. Like other than that, it's not a good model. And so what they did is they got together and they created this plan and they decided to intentionally make inferior light bulbs that would have an ideal lifespan of a 1,000 hours to, to continue their business and make sure their business would flourish. And this was one of the first of many different industrial and engineering moves that would later be dubbed something called planned obsolescence. It's a, it was planned to make something obsolete when you design the thing. You intentionally create a product with an artificial lifespan so that you can drive future sales. And that word planned obsolescence is a weird word. It's a weird phrase, but that that phrase has shaped our lives in profound ways, in ways you've never even thought about. Have you ever noticed that right around the time a new iPhone is released, your old iPhone's battery starts dying? I can't be the only one, right? It does that thing where it's a 30%, 2% boom, you know, and just utter blackness. Uh, That's not a coincidence. Apple, other phone manufacturers, they manufacture their cell phones and they have a finite number of battery charges, and they make it next to impossible for you to replace the battery. So what happens is, when the new model comes out, your battery's dying, and it's 100 bucks to replace the battery, or maybe two or 300 bucks, unless you're buying the new crazy phone, to replace it. This is why, this planned obsolescence, this is why companies use tamper-proof screws, and they warn you, if you open this electronic device or gadget, you will void the warranty. What they're trying to do is say, no, 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 we don't want you to open and fix the thing. We want you to throw it away, and we want you to buy a new one. This goes well beyond just, you know, the tech industry and the gadget industry. It's why car manufacturers release new models every single year with very, very minor differences. They just make the car look a little better. They actually, I think, reverse engineer them. How can we make a plain car? All right, this is this year, and now let's figure out how to make it a little cooler every year from from here and out to get people to buy it. This is what drives the fashion industry. Have you ever considered how do you get people to buy clothes when the clothes they have are perfectly fine? Well, you create a new style and it forces them to buy. This is why everything these days from ink cartridges to medication to bottled water comes with expiration dates. This idea of planned obsolescence it has shaped our economy in profound ways and it, it shapes how we spend our money. And I think it goes beyond that. I think it shapes how we think So we're not a people who repair things much these days, are we? Like if your toaster breaks, unless you would be in the 1%, you know, the, the 1% minority, if your toaster breaks, you're going to take it apart and fix it and you will be mocked incessantly if you do that. Like there's not toaster repair shops. Because the design is, no, no, you buy the thing. Once it breaks, you trash it. It goes into the landfill, you know, which are overflowing. The landfills are overflowing. And you replace it. You trade it in. You upgrade. I mean, this is what we do as a people. This is what we do as a society. We replace things. We trade them in. We go for the upgrade. And it's not just gadgets, clothes, and cars. I would argue it goes for our relationships as well. Generally speaking, we as a people don't know how to work through broken relationships. Generally speaking, we as a culture are pretty awful at working through conflict and at repairing broken relationships. We see this in sports. If a coach loses a few games and conflict emerges in the locker room, there might be a press release. Yeah, there's some conflict, but we're gonna work through it. But we all know that's not true. We all know, give it a week, give it two weeks, that coach is gonna be fired. You're not going to work through the conflict. We see this in our personal lives that we follow people on social media and if they say something we don't like or they repeatedly say something we don't like, then we just, what do we do? We don't confront them and say, hey, why do you think like this? And "And what's the basis for your argument? Or this this hurts me when you say it and it's offensive. What do we do? We hit the unfriend button. Although there's there's a new thing. I, I'm so behind with Facebook. I've always been behind with it. There's a block button, which is kind of awesome because then you hit Block, but they don't know that you unfriended them. And that way we can break the relationship off without them knowing we broke the relationship off. I'm being a bit sarcastic here. This is why when someone wounds us in a powerful and real way, we as a people, we often don't work to restore the relationship. We just hit eject, right? Social commentator Alan Jacobs writes, it seems that we are being accustomed to making the nuclear option the first option. Trying to come to terms with a difficult person or a difficult situation is an endeavor fraught with uncertainty. It might work, but it might not. And even if it does work, I can end up paying a big emotional price. Why not just bail out and start over? I would argue this isn't just in the culture, this is in the church, and it's something I see as a pastor all of the time. And it saddens me so much that someone gets sinned against in the church, maybe by a pastor, maybe by someone else in the church, someone in their community group. They get angry, and their first response, their first temptation is to bail, is to hit eject. Their anger. they say things and they take a posture. A lot of times people are so angry, you can tell that their posture is to hell with them. And I mean that literally when I say it. I'm gonna write them off. I'm gonna hit the nuclear option. I never wanna talk to them again. I don't wanna see them. I don't wanna deal with it. Let's just move on. Let's just jump to another church. And then we wonder why we have so few friends. And we wonder why we have so few deep relationships something I hear all the time, too. I just don't have any deep friends. Well, it's because we live in a culture that the minute conflict emerges, we just hit eject. How do you expect to have deep friendships? You know, we as a people, we struggle to love people who've wronged us. We struggle with forgiveness. And forgiveness is this topic that I think we all, we all love when it's in the abstract. Like, forgiveness is a good concept. We should all be forgiving we love it until we actually have someone to forgive who's actually wronged us. And then forgiveness in the particular is very painful and very hard. And I hear people say, and, and I feel it in myself, wait, you want me to forgive them after what they did to me? After what they said about me? After they hurt me? And the answer of Jesus is yes, I do. Jesus teaches, (laughs) Jesus teaching on forgiveness is probably the most radical thing he teaches. It goes beyond, I think it's more radical than sex, more radical than what he teaches about money. It's more offensive if you really press into it because Jesus teaches that forgiveness in the life of his followers is not optional and it's not conditional. In Matthew 6, after teaching on the Lord's Prayer, Jesus, because you know there's that line, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's, Jesus puts this addendum at the end of teaching us how to pray, hey, I want to clarify for you. If you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Period. It's not optional, And I would argue it's not conditional. Mark 11, Jesus says, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. He doesn't say if you hold anything against anyone that's illegitimate or unfounded or frivolous. He just says, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them. I don't think there's any command in the Bible that is more challenging, controversial, or countercultural than this. And what we have here in 1 Samuel 24 is one of the greatest stories. It's a narrative, so it's it's not a proposition, here's the truth. It's a story, true story, about how to love someone who's wronged you. And it's a really extreme story because Saul has wronged David in profound ways. He's been chasing him and trying to kill him and throwing spears at him. But I I like that it's so extreme because if David can love and show forgiveness to Saul, it can be instructive for us. And I wanna be clear that when we talk about forgiveness, it brings a lot of stuff up. You guys look very serious right now and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Forgiveness is a complex topic We're going to start a conversation today. We're probably not going to finish. Hopefully, you'll continue it on in your community groups. But when I talk about forgiveness, I'm speaking more of a posture than a process. And this needs to be really clear. There's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is a posture. It's a desire to not repay evil for evil. It's a desire to not hold bitterness or bear grudges or anger towards people. Reconciliation is a process of meeting with people and being restored to them and relationship entering a place of health after it's been in a place of unhealth. Forgiveness can happen apart from reconciliation. Reconciliation cannot happen without forgiveness. Sometimes, I would say this, that reconciliation requires work on both parties. Forgiveness only requires work from one one side, from our side. And what I love about this text is... (laughs) It's really a picture of what forgiveness looks like without reconciliation. And I love that because sometimes life is complex like this and we should desire reconciliation. We're gonna talk about that. But sometimes reconciliation is not possible but that doesn't mean that we don't need to forgive. That doesn't mean that we're freed or we're free to hold grudges, bear grudges, to bear anger or bitterness towards other people. And so we're gonna look at this text in the three headings the basis for forgiveness. Then we're going to talk about the practice. What does that actually look like? And then lastly, the power. How can we be these kinds of people? Starting with the basis. Like I said, Saul, is, Saul has been hunting David down because Saul's crazy. And he doesn't like that David's loved by people. David hasn't done anything wrong. Saul's been hunting him down. And his mistreatment of David has forced David and his men, so he's got some soldiers with him, to live as fugitives, hiding in the wilderness, and we talked about this last week. It was a decade of David and David's life and the life of his men, hiding in caves, you know, being neglect or being denied the, the basic comforts that come with civilization, being denied time with their families, ten years of just wandering and running, living in fear of this mad king who's coming after them. Now, In this text, in verse two, Saul gets word that David and his men are hiding in the desert of En Gedi. And so Saul rallies 3,000 of his uh, elite special forces, so to speak, his best men, and he says, we're going to go hunt David down and kill him. Now, when they arrive in the area, nature calls on Saul and in the Old Testament, a lot of the Old Testament laws don't make a lot of sense. This one, I think, makes a lot of sense. There's a law that says you cannot defecate in the camp. That's the law that God had to give. Like, that's a that's a good law, right? It still carries through to today. Like, so he's saying, you need to get out. And so Saul, he wanders away from the camp and he goes into this cave to do his business. And it just so happens that that's the cave that David and his men are hiding in. Now, Saul can't see him because of the darkness, but they can see him. And I I don't want to go too far with the imagination, but I do want you to think, Saul, he wanders in, David's men are watching, he takes off his sword, he takes off his robe, he crouches down and and gets in a position where he's very vulnerable and fairly helpless. And David's men see this and they can't believe their eyes. You've got to be kidding. Look what God is doing. Doing, David, God is serving Saul up on a platter to you. And first four, the men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of, when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now, God never said that to David, but the men kind of, that's how they interpreted what God had said. And they're looking at Saul, totally defenseless, and they're saying, David, with one slash of the sword, we can say goodbye to poverty, to hiding, to fear, and we can say hello to praise and wealth and comfort and to our families. You can almost hear the men singing, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord, like they're just, this is amazing. And David, he grabs his dagger and he sneaks up behind Saul. But instead of killing Saul, he cuts off a corner of his robe and then retreats back to his men who are hiding in the darkness. And David's men, they were unimpressed by this action, to say the least. Uh, David, he was conscience stricken, we're told, but David's men, they're like, What are you doing? And we see that there was a heated argument because in verse seven, we're told David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul and Saul left the cave and went on his way. That word rebuked, all of the commentators say that's just a bad translation because people are afraid to say what it really said. Because what it really says is David tore apart his men with his words. So David comes back and the men are like, why did you not kill him? Let's get out of here. Let's stop with this madness. And David gets so fiery. It gets so emotional that they're saying, he's tearing apart his men with words saying, you're not gonna touch him and I'm not gonna touch him. And the men watch as Saul wanders out of the cave. David's men wanted him to kill Saul. David says no. And the reason he says no, it's pretty fascinating because it's a theological reason. In verses five and six, David said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. This is something that David says over and over again during the season of his life. And what he's saying is, regardless of what Saul has done, regardless of what he deserves in and of himself, because David knows Saul is a bad man. And you're gonna see later in the text that we just read that David's saying, no, I pray that God will judge you and bring vengeance on you. And we're gonna talk about that. But David's not saying Saul's a good guy. And he's saying in and of himself, Saul probably deserves judgment, but because he's been anointed by God, he doesn't. Saul, God, God put this stamp on him, so to speak. And he said, you're my anointed. And it didn't make Saul a good man. In some ways, it kind of made Saul a worse man. But what that stamp meant is that Saul had a sacred dignity about him. And David said, I'm not gonna lift a hand against someone with that kind of dignity, against someone who has that kind of stamp on their life. You know, and withholding vengeance and payback and anger towards Saul, even more in showing honor and forgiveness, just the way David talks about him. The Lord forbid that I should harm my master, the king. David shows us something critical that we have to understand if we're going to be a people who walk in forgiveness. And that's this, that forgiveness, it's not just our duty to others. It's ultimately our duty to God. And forgiveness is not ultimately something we owe to others based upon their actions. It's something we owe to others based upon something God has done, God's actions. Because while the particulars of the situation are unique, the principle is universal. In Genesis 1, we're told that God created man in his own image. And so if you read Genesis 1, it's all of the creative works of God. You know, he creates the, the sun and the moon, the the land and the sea, the plants and the animals. And they're all great, all fascinating. They're all amazing and beautiful. But the pinnacle, the peak of God's creation is man and woman. And with man and woman, God did something he didn't do with anything else in creation. He stamped them with his image. And what the Bible teaches is that a human being is worth more than all of the great sequoias. It's worth more than all of the Himalayan mountains, all of beauty in this world. They crumble before the worth and value of a single human being. Why? Because we bear the image of God. God has marked us with his image. And so in James 3, James says, he's talking to a church that's filled with people who are bashing each other and lighting each other up and cursing each other. And James says, don't curse one another with your words. And his reason for it is because with your mouth, you're cursing people who have been created in the image of God and the likeness of God. Saying it's not fitting to talk about someone who bears God's image in that way. Because every person on earth is created in the image of God. Every person carries a sacred dignity about them, regardless of what they do or how they behave. We got to treat them as such. John Calvin, uh, who's known by a lot of people as a very stern man, uh, and he is somewhat deserved for Calvin, if you've read him. Um, but he has this to say, and it's, it's long, but it's powerful. He says, the Lord instructs us to do good to all people throughout the entire world. Many of whom are unworthy of such good if judged by their own merit. But scripture comes to our rescue with the best of reasons for doing good to all people. It teaches us not to regard others according to their own merits, but to consider in them the image of God to which we owe both honor and love. And then he gives these examples. I'm just reading a couple of the ones he gives. He says, suppose he is contemptible and worthless. Love Calvin's language. The Lord, however, shows him to be one whom he has condescended to decorate with his own image. Suppose you owe him nothing for what he's done, but God, to whom you know you are obligated because of his many wonderful benefits to you, puts himself, as it were, in that person's place, giving him his image. Suppose a man not only deserves nothing good from you, but he has also provoked you with injustices and injuries. Even this is not just cause for you to stop embracing him with affection and fulfilling your duties of love to him. We must be sure not to dwell on the wickedness of men, but rather to consider the image of God in them. That image, concealing and obliterating their shortcomings, entices us by its beauty and dignity to love and welcome them. Calvin is saying, what James is saying, what David is saying, is we must treat people with an incredible amount of honor and respect, what the Bible calls love. Even when on the outside, they're doing all kinds of awful things. And I know this is hard, but that's what you got to see. That the reason you treat people with love is not because of their actions. A lot of times it's in spite of their actions. It's because God put his image on them. And God has called us to love our neighbor as ourself. You know, when this guy comes to Jesus, what's the greatest command? Jesus gives two, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus couldn't say, I can give you one. He's like, they go together. I can't, I can't give you one. Jesus again and again says, we need to love our enemies. It's not because they deserve it. And it's so critical you see this. It's not because they deserve it. We think of forgiveness almost always on the horizontal axis. They sinned, it hurt me, I might forgive them, I might not. A lot of times people say, well, they don't deserve forgiveness. And I don't laugh when people say that to me because they're in a lot of pain, but of course they don't deserve forgiveness, right? I mean, that's the nature of forgiveness. Like it gets to the very definition. If if someone deserves forgiveness, then it's it's more recompense. It's not forgiveness, but we always think of it horizontally. And David and the scripture says, no, first we got to see it's our duty to God because God created that person. And they have a measurable worth just because God created them. There's this great line of band of brothers. You salute the rank, not the man. The person themselves might not be a very good person, but they are created in the image of God and you have to treat them as such. And it's so important for you to see this because a lot of you, you're basing the, the action of forgiveness, of releasing anger towards people and bitterness of not repaying evil for evil, of not embracing people in love. You're basing it on people's actions. And if that's what you're doing, gosh, it's gonna be so hard to forgive people. When you recognize another creator in the image of God and my creator, my master told me I need to do this because he created them. And gosh, when you think of Saul, There's a lot of questions, why did God let him reign so long? I don't know, but David was the kind of guy who could say, I don't know either, but God is doing it and he's in charge. And so I'm gonna trust him with it. And there's a lot of people in our lives, why is God not striking this person down? Who knows, but it's not your job to decide or encourage that. Your job is to love them. So that's the basis. Now the practice. Three things David shows us about the practice of forgiveness. Forgiveness, there's a, an a, ACB, you could say, of forgiveness. Number one, you absorb the debt. What I mean is when someone wrongs you, a debt's always created. Someone steals from you, there's a, a literal debt, a financial debt. If Someone hits you, it's the cost of your well-being, your good looks, and maybe a potential ER bill. If someone slanders you, spreads falsehood about you it's at the cost of your reputation the debt created by Saul's sin was that David and his men had to spend years living in the wilderness and suffering there's always a debt with sin and the question is what happens to that debt because debt doesn't just magically disappear you know if if someone backs into your Honda Odyssey on your way out of here today and it hits the bumper just guessing uh, And they put a little crack in the bumper and you say, you know what? I forgive you, don't worry about it. Well, that doesn't mean that the crack goes away. And gosh, these days that would be what? $1,000 to replace that? And so when you say, I forgive you, that $1,000, it doesn't just vanish into thin air. Well, I forgave them, so it just vanished. No, no, no. When you say, I forgive you, you're saying, I'm gonna cover it. I'll take the hit. I'll absorb the debt. I'll pay the $1,000 to get the bumper replaced. Or... When I go to sell the van, I'll take the $1,000 hit when I go to sell it, because it won't be worth as much. There's always a debt. There's only two things you can do with that debt. You can try to make other people pay, or you can pay the price yourself. Typically, when wronged, we want other people to pay. And and I want to be clear, I'm not talking about restitution here. I'm not saying if anyone does anything to you, you don't get the law involved, there's laws of the land. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is I'm talking at a personal level and a heart level. That when we forgive people, typically, or when we're wronged by people, typically we don't want to forgive, we want them to pay. And so what we do when someone hurts us is we retaliate. And retaliation looks so different, you know, depending on who you are. Some of you, you get angry and violent. Some of you get very cold. And you snub people. Some of you avoid. But we all all have our ways of paying people back. This is how I'm going to make them pay the price for what they've done to me. David, he could have made Saul pay pay the debt for his sin, plunging the dagger in his back, but he didn't. Instead, he refused to lay a hand on Saul. And in refusing to lay a hand on Saul, he's saying, I'm going to pay the debt. The 10 years of my life that you've taken from me, I'm going to absorb it. This is why forgiveness is so hard and it's so painful because we know it's costly. It's absorbing a debt. It's also confronting and wisdom and love. You know, some people hear this and say, gosh, that just sounds really passive. You just let people walk all over you? Of course not. You confront. Sometimes when people say you need to know how to overlook and I think, Overlooking an offense is a lost art and a lost virtue in the church today. That when someone sins against you, you do have the right to say they sinned against me, but that's okay, I love them and I'm not gonna bring it up or think about it again. We as a people, we struggle with even just overlooking and sometimes I think we just need to overlook. If we confront everyone every time they sin against us or if people confront us for every time we sin against them, we're not gonna have jobs, right? <laughs> it's gonna be a full-time job. And so sometimes, though, when people really hurt you, when people really wound you, you can't just overlook it. And you need to confront them, not just for your sake, but for the sake of other people. You need to confront them, not just because they hurt you, but because you don't want them to hurt other people because it's a blind spot in their life. And David, he does confrontation so well in this passage. He confronts them both wisdom and love. He doesn't stroll into the midst of Saul's 3,000 elite special forces. You know, I'm going to go have my confrontation with Saul. I'll just roll right into the middle of his army. No, no, no. He waits until Saul walks a good distance away. He has to yell to him where he's still kind of in the safety of his cave with his men. And then he calls out to Saul. And that's how he confronts. In wisdom, but also in love. Because David says, Saul, why are you listening to men? When men say David's bent on harming you, this day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I'm not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you're hunting me down. To take my life. David's saying here, Saul, you're believing a lot of lies that I'm I'm bent on killing you, and I just had the perfect chance and I didn't touch you. And I got a piece of your robe as proof. I don't want you to harm me anymore. I want you to stop. But I don't want to harm you. I just I just don't want you to hunt me down trying to kill me. This is what it looks like to confront and love. David's not giving Saul an earful. He's going after Saul's heart, right? Saying I, I could have and I didn't because it's not what I want. I don't want to pay you back for everything. I just want you to stop in your destructive behavior. And I would say if you confront some out of someone out of love without the slightest desire to make them pay in the confrontation, there's a chance that they're going to hear you and change what I... They might, they might, they might not. What I do know is that if you confront someone in anger and your confrontation is really a means of paying them back, which is so often what confrontation is, you meet to confront, why? So that you can make them pay, they're never gonna change. Because you sit down, you've got both guns loaded and you go after them. They know that you're, you're not coming in love. You're really just coming in retaliation. And you know what they're going to do? When you retaliate, they're going to retaliate right back and the, the cycle will go on endlessly. We need to confront wisdom and love. And then number three, we need to be realistic. The goal of forgiveness is reconciliation of a relationship. That's the goal. That forgiveness is a step in a process and the goal. And, and I think that goal is achievable 98, 99% of the time. That 98, 99% of the time when someone sins against you, You can be reconciled. That's the goal that you're working towards. But sometimes, some cases, reconciliation might not be possible or might not be possible in the moment, especially when you're dealing with dysfunctional people, highly dysfunctional people. You know, when you read 1 Samuel, and I've been studying it for a year now with a lot of the men in our church, Saul is a deeply dysfunctional man. Uh, he's mentally unstable. And this doesn't mean that David doesn't need to forgive him, but I think it does mean that David should not trust him. And it's absolutely possible to forgive someone without also trusting them at the same time. It's fascinating how the text ends. David confronts Saul. We're not gonna look at Saul's response because Saul repents, you know, but... Saul's always doing that. He's always saying, I'm sorry, I won't do this. And it seems genuine in the moment, but David, David, he's, he's loving, but he's not stupid. And so we're told at the very end that David gave his oath to Saul. You're right, I'm not gonna cut your family off. Then Saul returned home. And you would think, and then David went home to his family and friends. No, David and his men went up to the stronghold. It's David's way of saying, we had a confrontation, I'm working, but I don't trust him. One bit. And I want to be so careful here. I don't know how to say this, and it, like I, I plead with the Spirit and I plead for you as you hear these words to really be attentive to the Spirit's work in your soul, because some of you are refusing to be reconciled with people who've hurt you, and the reason you're refusing is because you still want to make them pay. Some of you, you you give all kinds of excuses but in the end, you just wanna make them pay. You want them to feel the pain of your coldness, your avoidance, your anger. And I just wanna say, and I know it's hard, but I believe the gospel compels us to work towards reconciliation. Now, at the same time, I don't want anyone here who's in an abusive or a destructive relationship to stay in that relationship in the name of obedience. Too often, people in the church, almost always, it's almost always women and children in the church, they endure horrific abuse in the name of obedience, submission, that's a big one, right? Or forgiveness. And I think there's a special place of judgment for people who use the words of God that tell people you just need to stay and continue to be abused and not get help. And so if you're in that place, I really want you to hear that you can forgive and you should work to forgive, but you don't need to trust. And if you're in an abusive relationship or an abusive situation, you need to get out. Today, go someplace safe, call the authorities first and then call us. And we'll step in. And we'll walk with you in the midst of it. Now, the challenge is, I, th- I, think that's, I think that's a very real reality for some of you in this room. But it's not for a lot of you. And what I say is people, I, I hear people say all the time, well, I don't, I don't, I don't want to go and work towards reconciliation because I don't feel safe with them. Well, you're never going to feel safe when you're confronting someone. It's always going to feel a bit risky. And so we need a ton of wisdom and we need community to know how to do this well. But I don't want anyone to continue to suffer in abusive relationships, in the name of being obedient. If you think that's what God's calling you to, come and talk to a pastor today, and let's have a discussion about it. The goal is to the practice of forgiveness. It's you absorb a debt, you you confront wisdom and love, but you also you got to be realistic. Don't be foolish, and don't be naive. Forgiving people is not being naive. It's just saying, I'm not gonna bear this anger and I'm not gonna try to repay you for all you've done. Lastly, we get to the power. How do we do this? Is this hard for anyone else? Is this challenging? How do we live like this? Where did David get this kind of power? And I'll tell you three things. Two things David had, one thing David didn't have. Number one, David entrusted his cause to God that David's ability to forgive was born out of the fact that he believed in a God of judgment. And so David says, may the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. My hand will not touch you. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. What David is saying here is he's not saying it doesn't matter what you've done. He's not saying that, well, let's just let bygones be bygones. He's saying, no, I believe in a God of justice and a God of judgment. And I'm going to entrust my cause to him because David is smart enough to know. He's wise enough to know that he's not wise enough to truly give people what they deserve. The reality is when we want to pay people back, we don't know how to do that well. We don't have the wisdom. We don't know what people have been through. We don't know why they are the way they are, why they do what they do. We don't know the condition of their heart. Some people who look really kind on the outside should deserve judgment in an instant. Some people who look pretty rough on the outside oftentimes deserve the most mercy. We just don't know, and it's not our job to know because we are not the judge. We're creation. We're not creator. Our job is to entrust judgment to the one who will get it right, and God will get it right. So often I hear when people are sinned against, if I forgive them, they just get away with it. No, no one gets away with anything in this universe and in history. Like our God will bring judgment and it will be so fierce that people will cry out for mountains to fall on them. I would rather be crushed by a mountain than have to face the wrath that's coming to me. I mean, it's so severe. And David is saying, God, I'm gonna trust you to get it right because I can't get it right. In that day, no one gets away with anything. You entrust your cause to God. I would say you also need to entrust your anger, your sadness and your emotions to God. This is one of the big hindrances to forgiveness. David's faith in a God of justice and judgment wasn't just a detached, I'm sure God will figure it out. Who cares? You know, David, he had a whole lot brewing in his soul. And it was in this season in the wilderness that David wrote some of his most controversial psalms. They're called the imprecatory psalms. If you've ever read them, they're very jarring because you're reading and it's like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, this is so warm and encouraging. And then you get to an imprecatory psalm and David's saying, Lord, break the teeth in the mouth of my enemies. Destroy them. Slay the wicked in your faithfulness, oh God. You ever read those Psalms and thought, whoa, can I pray this? Is this okay? You know that it really is a quick, can we pray that? I I don't know. Like, I don't know. I, I can make arguments on both sides. What I do know is that we can say things to God in prayer that we should never say to another soul and that we should never let stew in our own soul. And David, even in these imprecatory Psalms where he's pouring out his anger, what's he doing? He's still being obedient because he's saying, God, I entrust the judgment to you. I'm gonna give you my anger. But when he says, David, or Lord, you slay them, he's saying, I want you to slay them, but I'm gonna trust it to you because I won't get it right, but you'll get it right. And something I've wrestled with for years and I've seen people wrestle with, when we absorb the cost of someone's debt when they sin against us, It's so hard and it can create all kinds of dark stuff in our soul. And the movement of forgiveness, I think part of it is you absorb the cost, but then you pour out your emotions before God. You absorb the cost, but then you pour out your anger before God. You don't let it sit. You take it to God. The power to forgive is found in knowing that God will get it right knowing that we can bring all of our emotions before him without fear. And then we as believers, we have something that David never had. We have a resource that empowers us to forgive that David could only hope for. And that's the truly anointed one, the one whom David pointed to, Jesus Christ, who came, was abused, he was mistreated, he was wrongly accused, and he was crucified. And in the midst of it, Jesus didn't seek justice or vengeance for his enemies. Instead, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And it's because he has forgiven us that that we get to eat and breathe and experience life. We don't deserve the best things in your life. You just do not deserve it. I do not deserve them. We deserve judgment every breath, every good thing comes by the mercy of God. He's forgiven us the huge debt. It's because of that that we're able to forgive people of the smaller debts. As we move to the Lord's Supper, gosh, this is a weighty Sunday. I was telling Pastor Brian before the service, all right, so I want to call people to give, serve, and forgive. (laughs) Right? What's for dinner tonight? (laughs) Broccoli, asparagus, and cauliflower, right? (laughs) Does that sound good? That's where the the Lord's table, it's so good for us. It reminds us that when we fall short, the Lord's body was broken for our lack of forgiveness and our sin. It's also a reminder, communion throughout church history, it's been a time of reconciliation that we can examine our hearts and say, who do I need to forgive? And maybe there's people in this room you need to be reconciled to, and you can do that now. You can do that after the service. And I know that sounds so weird and strange to you, but the table makes it possible. Because what we celebrate at the table is while we were enemies with God, Christ died for us. And Because God has reconciled us to himself, we have the power to be reconciled with one another. And even if that's not possible right now, I pray that that would be our hope. Even if you're in a situation where you can't be reconciled with someone and it's just... It's not gonna happen right now. I still pray that when you come to the table that you would ask God to give you the hope that someday you might. Might be weeks, months, or years, but someday we might be reconciled. Let me pray.